0: Just want to say a warm welcome. My name is Mike, uh, the pastor and planter of this church. And I, I was definitely had some nostalgia. Uh, last night I came in to write a little bit and finished my sermon and uh Crystal had finished kind of putting the pictures up and stuff. And oh right, Bergen Kids. Can you guys head out to the back? They're all flagging me, waving me down. Uh if you're the Bergen kids, you guys can can head out. Okay, back up here. All right. So uh what happened was I was I was having some nostalgia because I was going through those pictures and looking at the different seasons and times, remembering when we were in at uh, home with 18 of us just praying that God might do something, and just a couple years later to see hundreds worshiping his name is wild. Uh, and, and it's only evidence of a resurrection. I, I was telling the first service, man, I, I, we wouldn't have moved our family and, and changed our course of life if there wasn't no a resurrection. That's the, the dumbest move in the book. I mean, uh, to just somehow think that we'll just gather with some people and just by magic power. Uh, some mystical agent might do something. There's a real God who does exist, who does reconcile sinful men and women back to himself, and the church is the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we love Easter, because we have a resurrected Savior who didn't stay dead. And so he's with us now, he empowers us, and he allows us to live uh, the life that he does. Um, I I just wanted to mention that, you know, I was also thinking uh, last night as I was writing that Easter Sunday is just a Just an odd Sunday uh, for a pastor. Now, it might be odd for some of you all, because you're like, man, I never thought I'd find myself here. Maybe you somehow wandered. I thought you'd just gather on Sunday at some warehouse in the back of Evelyn Street. I don't know how you ended up landing yourself here. But either way, it might be a little weird, might be a little odd. But for a pastor... Uh, it can be odd because there's this just silliness that's out there in the Christian world. You probably might already think the Christian world's silly, but let me help you with that. There's this this silliness that exists where um, it's Easter and you've got to come up with like your home run sermon every year, but you can't use last year's, right? So you can't rinse and repeat. So how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna make it more creative? How am I gonna lay before the people something that will wow them and change them? You might come back on Christmas. How do we do this? How, How do we figure this thing out? And I literally sat at my desk last night going, this is totally insane (laughs) that there is a God that exists that made all things we choose rebellion. He doesn't abandon us in our rebellion. He pursues us, incarnates himself in the second member of the Trinitarian God, one God, three distinct persons in Jesus Christ. He comes, lives a life without sin, does miracles, claims to be God, he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, he is who he said to be, lives without sin, goes to a cross, tortured, scoffed at, murdered through false trials and false accusations. He takes on the wrath of God for you and I. He is a substitute in our place for our sin rises back from death, goes and visits with people. Before he ascends, says, hey, I'm going to come back and judge the living and the dead. And i got to try to make that more exciting. Right? I mean, i I got to have something else that's like, going to substitute that. I'm, I'm walking in Easter going, man, i got nothing else. You know what? This church has been built upon just let's share the word. Let's just let the Bible tell you what it is. Man, I can't transform anyone in this room. I can't make anybody transform. I can't make anyone love Jesus. I can't make anybody follow Jesus. I can't make any of you want to turn from sin and turn to Christ. But, man, apparently the authority is not in the message but in the power of the word of God. And so, man, we want to pray that I I was thinking this morning, okay, well, Lord, where where do you want me to go? Because uh, as I look at Jesus' life and the ways that he uh, preached and taught me, it's just weird. I don't know if you've actually looked at it. I mean, you know, I was thinking about the Gospel of Luke. We were in the Gospel of Luke, and, and Jesus comes, and it's like an Easter, right? Crowds are coming to visit him, and he walks up, and he says, there was a farmer. People are what? Right? There was a farmer planting seeds, right? Through just scattered seeds. It's a great Easter sermon, right? And, and some fell on soil, and birds came and ate it. Uh, some seed fell on just hot ground so the sun scorched it up uh, some seed fell and it started to take root and thorns choked it out but then other seed fell on good soil rich soil full soil and it started producing a harvest hey if you get it great if you don't see later right That's <laughs> so what he does right I mean you ever read that you ever looked at his teachings going is that is that my sermon you know what's great the disciples are like Jesus what in the world just happened and he explains it he says the word of God is like that. Man, it's gonna go forth. There's nothing you can do to help it. And he goes, it's gonna fall on some seed. Some of you guys this morning, you're just like, man, I just can't wait to leave this place. I gotta get out of here. I gotta get to lunch. Man, my spouse brought me, my friend brought me. This is this long-winded preacher. Is he even allowed to preach? Looks like he's 13. I mean, I don't know what you're you're thinking in your head, right? You've got all these different thoughts. Then others of you, man, it's it's gonna take a little bit of root, and then you're gonna get it's gonna get choked out. Well, how do I fit Jesus into like my life, though, man? He's not that important. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I don't wanna submit my life to him. I don't want to actually follow him, I don't want to actually give him allegiance, right? This is more important, this is more important. But others of you, it's going to fall possibly in your heart. You're going to go, man, wait a second. I get forgiveness of sin. Like, wait a second, I've been misdiagnosing the problem all along, and I've actually got the solution to my dissatisfied heart? Like, like, I've actually been wandering around looking for things to satisfy this, and I realize I need a resurrected Jesus. I've been worshiping dead saviors. I need a living savior. I've been chasing what God has made and not worshiping the creator itself. All of a sudden, for you, maybe God's going to illuminate your heart and mind a waiter where you say, I want that, yes, Easter Sunday. So... That's why I thought, man, I'm I'm this morning just going to preach a sermon of a sermon. Acts 2, where Peter gets up and just gives a sermon. And that's all he does. He just tells it like it is. And 3,000 people turn to Christ because God decided to be kind. Because God decided to be merciful. And I want to look at what he says because this is this is back when, man, the church was just starting. Jesus had risen. This man, Peter, if you're not familiar with Christianity, man, he was terrified. Had his tail between his legs, often denied Jesus Christ right to his face and said, I don't know that man when he was going through beatings and torture and accusations and trial. And then ultimately goes and becomes a pillar of the faith, a rock bed of Christianity, and goes unashamedly, publicly, clearly, emphatically saying, this man is God. He does die for sin. He did rise. So he, he gets up here. He's transformed by the resurrection, and he gets up, and there's about 120 people that make up the church. Now there's, what, 2 billion people that worship the name and renown of Jesus Christ that started flourishing from this sermon, the reason the church exists today. And let me look at what Peter says. He gets up in front of the political and religious establishment and says this, Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That just means he did healings. He raised people back to life. He did all of these things that you all saw, right? You all witnessed this. This is nothing new to those people of that day. He says, you heard about all these things. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay, so Peter gets up and he just starts in front of these religious and political leaders. He just starts at the beginning and he goes, okay, hey, there is one true God, this God that made the universe, this God that made you and I, this God that rules over all creation. Um, He has foreknowledge and he has an eternal plan. Now, some of you guys are going, I don't know if that's good news. That's great news to us that love and follow Jesus Christ, that this God has foreknowledge and that this God has a plan. That you and I, man, you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon? I mean, it could be the best Easter Sunday afternoon that you had all planned in your mind. The food tastes great. Everybody's happy. If you're not a pagan, you open up eggs. Right? You do all that. Or it could be just a train wreck of a day. Food's burnt. Family's all chaotic. Arguing. It's nothing like you thought. Then this God, yeah, you don't know tomorrow. You don't know next month. You don't know next year. But this God knows all, sees all, rules over all, and has a plan for all. And here, this God demonstrates that this foreknowledge is good. So some of us fear tomorrow, want to protect ourselves from tomorrow. He says, You don't need to worry about that. You need to know the God of tomorrow. This God that has foreknowledge, God, this God that's working a plan from eternity past to rescue sinful men and women back to himself. And so in this, as he's showing this plan, Peter says, This God that knows all, governs all, sees all, and works all, is working out his plan. And it's a sure plan. This plan's not going to fail. See, even in the midst of our lives, that seem chaotic and like it doesn't make sense. God's at work in that. He has a plan. It's not chaotic to God. It's not abstract to God. It's not dissonance to God. It's not ignorance to God. And he shows that this plan was that we were made by God for God, by his mercy, by his grace. And we rebel. We choose other things. We worship other idols, career, addictions, self, career, empowering, acts, Greed, we're we're saturated with sin, right, from birth. And he doesn't abandon us. He comes to us. We don't ascend to him. He descends to us in a human likeness, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he comes as man because men and women need to be reconciled to God. He takes on full humanity, full divinity, without sin, and goes to the cross despising its shame we heard on Good Friday. Now, as Peter's unraveling this, as he's showing us this, Peter says as God has this plan, the sure plan that will not be stopped because he did not stay in the grave, he said that other people had another plan, and he calls them lawless men. Lawless men just means that you do not submit to the laws of God. You do not like the laws of God. You disregard the laws of God. Um, To live as the most important person that exists in your universe, that's a lawless person. So I'm like, wow, that's weird. That's what the Bible says. I mean, Bible repeatedly say that sin is not so much your external action, but a state of your heart that leads to action. So there's heart work going on, right? We're lawless people. We want to judge ourselves. We want to stand before ourselves. We want to look in the mirror at ourselves and say, I dictate what's right. I dictate what's wrong. At the end of it all, I'm going to stand before myself, and I'm going to judge myself. And Peter says, that's a lawless way to live. And he goes, these lawless men and women ultimately devised this plan to murder Jesus, to kill Jesus. Now, let me just say to you, when God comes in love and humanity tries to murder him, it's not so much amazing at looking at the love of God, but an indictment on the sinfulness of humanity. That that's our response to God coming in love. Is that we would want to put him to death, and Peter rolls this out and shows us that it's because of sinfulness, lawlessness. So we are not good people with bad moments. Happy Easter. Right? We are bad people with perceivably good moments at times. But our our intentions are always off. Man, our our, our desire, even, even wanting to do good things at times, we we'll want to do it not because we want him, but because we want something else. And so here Peters revealing just the holiness of God, the, the lawlessness of man. And so he is gone through a plan as devised by political and religious leaders. He's arrested through false accusations, false trials. He's beaten, whipped, spit upon, scourged. He eventually goes to the cross as he's weeping, dying, bleeding. He reveals his humanity, and he says, "I'm thirsty." And in that being thirsty, right, the Romans are going to mock him more and say, fine. And they grab a sponge, likely one they use to clean themselves after going to the bathroom when they're out in battle. Put it on the edge of a spear and shove it into his mouth. But in the same hour, Jesus reveals his divinity. And he says, all of this is finally finished. I'm going to put away sin, sickness, lawlessness Eternally, and I'm going to remake a new created earth and world starting with this death and ending with my resurrection and ultimately my return. That's what he's rolling out here. It was a plan. You know what I love here is as people think the plan of God is failing, it's prevailing. That's what Peter's showing. He goes, man, people were going, man, why don't you just bring yourself down, call your angels, your hosts, man, if you're really God. Why don't you do something about it? The religious establishment wanted Jesus to come in on this white horse with a sword, man, and make them a conquering hero It was still selfly motivated, right? They wanted their empire to be made right then and there, and Jesus comes on a donkey, meek, humble, in the form of a servant, unlike any king they would expect. And he takes the wrath of God upon himself for lawless men and women. He atones for lawless men and women. He offers forgiveness for lawless men and women who are lost thinking they know how the world operates and how it's designed to be. And he does this. And here's what I love. This is one of the reasons how I know, and some of us in this room know that Christianity was not fabricated or written by man or this book is made up. Listen, you and I would never devise of this plan. You know who the hero is? You. So you're like, no, not me. All right, well, someone else you know. It ain't Jesus, not someone who says deny yourself, not someone who says, hey, come to me and you'll find life, not if someone who says lose your life and you'll save it. Man, all of us are putting our name down in there or someone else's name down in there. We would never devise a plan of a righteous, sinless Savior being substituted for us. We want to be our substitute. We want to get up there and prove that we're awesome. No one would devise of a, of, a, of a God incarnating himself and living a righteous life and resurrecting, saying he'll return again to resurrect the living and the dead and judge them and there's this eternal home and banishment and hell for those that refuse. No, no, None of us would make up this plan. That's why it was his plan. And it was his plan to take his place and put us in his place because that was his plan. None of us would have dreamt this up. Yet God from eternity past it. I'm going to roll out this magnificent plan. Man, we don't need to die because Jesus died. We don't need to be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken. We don't need to be tormented with sin because Jesus was tormented with our sin. He takes our damnation, gives us salvation, takes our death, gives us life. He takes us as enemies and makes us friends and family. None of us are making up that plan. But Jesus does, God does, through his Holy Spirit does, he seals and says, this plan's going to happen, whether you try to stop it or come along with it, this thing will be built. Amazing, later or earlier, right, when Jesus came to Peter and he said, on your profession that I'm the Christ, that I'm God, I'm going to build my church, and here is Peter getting up saying, here's the profession of faith, and the church is about to be inaugurated. Amazing. Is anyone with me today? It's Easter. He's alive. This is amazing. He's rolling out a plan from the fake. You, one person is like thrilled about this. The seed's being thrown. And here he says this. This is awesome. Jesus, when he's done, verse 29, here's what Peter says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter is just reminding them mid-sermon of the finality and universal reality of death. Uh, maybe something that many of us want to push off. But last time I checked, death is hard charging at 100%. For every, every single one of us. Every single one of us ultimately will die, will be buried, and everyone will know where you're buried. And so he's reminding us, hey, even the great people, do you think are holy men are dead? King David? I mean, if there's anyone they knew, it was King David. They loved King David. Man, God for God's own heart. Yeah, he didn't have a totally pure heart. Hadn't committed adultery, murdered the husband, yet God, his grace, showed kindness anyways because of the foreshadowing work of Jesus Christ. He, he was still going to bring David in and make him holy, not because David was holy, but because Jesus would be holy. So he goes, okay, even David, who you think is righteous and holy, you know you can go to his grave site, right, and he's still there. His body's in the tomb. He didn't resurrect Jesus did. The pangs of death could not hold him. But David rose back from life. Here's what he's revealing. Here's what he's doing. He's reminding us that no matter how rich we are, intelligent we are, famous we are, obscure we are, poor we are, does not matter, we will one day die, be buried, and people will visit where we are buried. Except Jesus. He's showing the exclusivity of Jesus. He's showing you, see, here's what, what happens. And these people knew this. Um, th- this is what literally changes Christianity from the face of every religion on the earth. We don't worship a dead man. Like, like, we don't worship an example. Like, we don't want you to believe in Jesus. We want you to experience Jesus. Like, we don't want you to just have faith in Jesus. We want you to be stunned by the one who was faith in essence. We want you to know that the resurrection wasn't something that just happened in the past. It's a present reality you can have right now. Right, So this Jesus that's resurrected, he's showing and validating and revealing here that, that Christianity is one because every major faith, you know what they do? They all take trips to look at their founder's grave and venerate it and put flowers and put candles. Uh, don't do it for Jesus. You want to know why? He ain't there. Listen, you want to know where Abraham's tomb is? Go to Hebron. You know what you're going to find? Abraham. You want to know where Buddha is? You go to India. You know what you're going to find in his tomb? Buddha. You want to look for Muhammad? You want to go to Medina? You know who you're going to find. Good job, uh, Joseph Smith. You want to go find him? Go to Illinois. You want to go to his burial site? You know who you're going to find his tomb? Okay, very good. Hey, uh, go travel to the Middle East. Go to Israel where I went and look for Jesus' tomb. You know who you're going to find nobody. Right? You're not going to find anybody because, oh, unique, right? He's not there. No one can find it. No one knows. Everyone's frantic looking around. There's, there's no body. There's no grave. The death could not hold him. Man, this is, this is fact. This is not just mythical or ethereal. I mean, this is reality that Peter is laying before him. I mean, Jesus is set apart. Jesus is different. And the truth that no one is in Jesus' Jesus's tomb, yet you can go to David's tomb and see him, is absolutely emphatically important. And even Peter talks about it. See, in that day when Jesus died, there were upwards of over 50 memorializations at tombs and burial sites for people perceived to be holy men. So people would come and bring candles and flowers and charts and mourn and weep. And you know what they did right after Jesus was buried? They didn't go venerate his tomb. You know what they did? They went to town and had crumb cake with them and sat with him for a Bible study. That's what people were doing for the first 40 days. He got up and appeared to a couple hundred, right? He's, he's telling them, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I've resurrected. I'm not dead. I mean, people knew this. These people listening had ancestors who would have told them these stories. He's going, you guys know that, man, yeah, David might be in his tomb. Jesus ain't. You heard the stories of people going and talking with him and mingling with him and having conversation with him. Peter's saying, man, if you're going to follow someone, trust someone, follow that guy. You, you have pain, sickness, sorrow, sin, no purpose, meaning, you know, no, no understanding, man, follow that guy. <laughs> Don't follow some dead guy. Follow the guy who resurrected himself from the dead and offers fullness of life and forgiveness of sin. That's why he says this in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, talking about David still, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus got raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying the resurrection is intensely personal and intensely rational. The resurrection is intensely personal and intensely rational. Here's the problem. First, the personal piece. Um, I would bet, and I'm just taking a guess, in this room, a bulk of us believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You just have no clue what to do with it. It bears no weight on your life at all. Zero. Zero. I mean, you, you even come and worship every week. Yeah, I believe Jesus rose. Man, I'm here on Easter. But, but you don't even know what to do with it. See, see, Peter's revealing, man, if this is true, if this thing that was foretold is true, man, this thing bears weight immediately in intense personalness. Because if you go back, what he's unrolling here, what Peter's unrolling here was what they all knew, which is God comes to Abram, who would later be Abraham, and he says, hey, I know this whole thing is broken. Now, If you don't believe it's broken, you're not a human, right? All of us would agree, universally, I don't care your background, belief, or faith, this thing is broken. You can believe in natural selection, but I don't know how that agrees with your desire to kill cancer, because if... Natural selection is trying to off some of us. Why would you want to stop that process? But you've got this idea where we see sickness, shame. Why are we digging water wells in Africa? Why are we going to the Middle East? Why are there wars and famine? Why are we trying to stop injustice? Why are we trying to see evil pushed back? All of us, if we wake up at all with a heartbeat or a pulse, know something has gone terribly wrong. No one denies that, right? So God says, well, it's sin. I know something's gone wrong. There's been fracture, there's folly, there's injustice permeated in the heart of humanity and in the very fabric of creation. And he goes, okay, look, man, from your line, someone's going to come and get rid of all injustice, all fracture, all folly. We're going to have a new recreated earth where there will be shalom with God like it was meant to be in the garden that you got kicked out of and you're constantly trying to get back into. That's why some of you so badly want this ethereal world, which is really the garden of eden which you got kicked out of and your heart's longing for that ecclesiastes says it was written on your heart and so here he's saying hey this one's coming this redeemer's coming this rescuer is coming i'm going to roll out the kingdom and the kingdom will come in jesus christ and he will die and he will rise and it will ultimately be fully fulfilled when he returns again and so he goes hey let me roll out the law to you right now we laugh at the law the old testament didn't laugh at the law Because that that revealed just how holy God was. In fact, they rejoiced at it. David in the Psalms is like, man, thank you, God, for this law. Thank you that I have it. It shows me how I'm wired to live. It shows me how God has designed me. It shows how he's created the world to exist. And what happens? He goes, man, we fall way short. We cannot line up with this law. The, The effects of sin are too deeply woven in me. So he goes, okay, cool, let's roll out the sacrificial system. Because I need you to realize how holy I am. See, here's what was terrifying to them in the holiness of God. It was not that your bad days offended him. It was that even your good days offended him. That there were still places in you where you, you weren't honest in that. You weren't really desiring to give him glory. And so they said, hey, blood must be spilled to cover sin. That's how serious it is. And so, what happens? God brings in the prophets. Prophets are going, hey, the kingdom's coming. The Messiah's coming. He's going to bring in and usher in forgiveness of sin. And what happens in the Psalms? They sing these Psalms that this Redeemer will come, this God will come. And what happens, man? 400 years of silence. Where is God? Is he faithful to his promise? What's he doing? And then a homeless guy eating locusts shows up. That's John the Baptist. No church, church folk in here, okay? So he comes in and he goes, hey, make straight the paths, right? The Messiah is here. The king is here. Repent for the forgiveness of sin. See the language of Peter? He's going to say repent for the forgiveness of sin. He says, hey, make straight paths for this king. Remember all the stuff that was promised to Abraham. You remember all the stuff that the law revealed. Remember all the stuff that the sacrificial system exposed. Remember all the psalms that were sung. All the things that your prophets foretold he's here the kingdom's here Christ is here make straight these paths what's been crooked will be made straight and no one understands what he's talking about and the king follows him and the king comes in and he's going to do every bit of the oaths that were sworn he's going to do every bit of what was foretold he's going to do every bit of what was promised He's so faithful and good. He has foreknowledge. He has a definite plan. His plan ain't gonna be stopped. And It was from eternity past. And that's why he's showing us here that we've been saved from the kingdom of darkness, from that oath promised to your forefathers and their forefathers, promised to Abram. You've been brought out of darkness through the cross and into the marvelous light, the kingdom of light through the resurrection. And he goes, now, man, you don't just sit back and go, cool, man, I'm saved. I'm gonna wait for glory. He goes, now you're ambassadors of reconciliation. He goes, now you're you're, you're a herald, not about you, but about him. You fundamentally, the resurrection changes you. It is not something that you just believe as a historical event. It is a present event that you have right now. That you can walk in fullness of life now. That you can have forgiveness of sin now. That you can live and breathe and worship and enjoy the triune God who made you now. You can have him intervening on your behalf now, not just in the future. And then he says, we're all eyewitnesses of this. So it's not only intensely personal, it's intensely rational. He's like, man, we saw this thing. This thing I'm telling you about? Man, I was there. You know, if, if you got a, a letter or something in the mail today, or I guess it's Sunday, so you don't get mail. You forgot to check your mail, so you got it Sunday. You went, got your mailbox. Happy Easter. It says you got like a million bucks waiting for you because somebody who knew you or a relative or somebody left it for you when they passed. Now, I would bet, if you're like me, a little skeptical, right? Hmm. But you'd check it out. Right? Right? Yeah, you would. I'll answer for you. You would. You would. You would not take that letter and go, and throw it in the trash. You want to know why you check it out? The offer's too great. Offer's too great. If that's true, I got to check it out. I got to seek it out. See, it's totally okay to be skeptical of the resurrection, but to not seek it out, to not do your homework, to not see if it's true, to not see if it's rational, well, you'd be a fool, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the same. The offer is too good not to look into it. Man, dude, if I die and I believe in this and it's a sham, okay, I still have an awesome life. Every bit of what the scriptures encourage me to do gives me more life than what the world says. But man, if you're wrong, eternally, eternally you hit the ramifications. It's a no-brainer. I mean, I've never understood people that get up and go, Okay, you believe that there is eternal life after this and that Jesus alone forgives sin and re- rescuing from that and, and hope and a family and forgiveness and life and all that He gives you in that kingdom. Oh, and you believe that we're just here and now and we're all just going to burn and disintegrate in the ground. You're both right. It makes no sense. You're both right. I mean, the ramification, you ever just talk about, going? hold on a second. I'm talking about eternity here, heaven, hell. I mean, eternity. Ah, you're both right. And here Peter's going, no one's both right. There's one right. And go with the guy who is still to this day at work, the God who is still today at work. He's showing us. So listen, when we look at this, he's showing us it's intensely rational. Back in John 20. Back in John 20 when, when I love that scene when the disciples, or the, actually the women go and they, they find the tomb empty. What do they do? They run back, tell the disciples. They're frantic. They can't believe it. And then what happens? Peter and John, they go run and look in the tomb. John's like, I don't know that I'm going in. Peter's like, I'm going to go in. And he looks, and it's so specific in John 20 if you read it. It says the clothes, his body clothes were folded, and the head, the things that were around his head was off to the side folded. And it says that Peter stared and looked at that. Now, here's what's important. The word there is that he intensely searched for explanation. He's going, hold on a second. That's weird. They're neatly folded. And the head garments are neatly folded. If I'm a robber and I steal the body like I'm hearing out there, well, they're the dumbest robbers I've ever met. I mean, they didn't bring the spices that kept his body from smelling and they took the time to fold the linens and put them on a bench. The dumbest robbers out there. And if the disciples took the body, why'd they leave him naked? Right? He's got no clothes. All his linens are here. I mean, bros, what are you doing? If you're going to take the body, take him in the linens. He's thinking, He's searching for explanation. This is important. Here's why this is important. Because people today say, oh, I I believe with reason and rationality. You Christians, you got blind faith. You just believe it. That's actually pretty stupid. That's pretty stupid. Um, According to Peter, actually, he shows here, even in his sermon, that the resurrection is far short of blind faith. You'll see that even the women left, and they left searching for evidence, wanting it to be rational, for it to make sense, for them to be able to see what they witnessed. Why? Because before Jesus, there were all these messianic pretenders. Before Jesus, there were all of these men who claimed to be the Messiah. They claimed to be the ones. You can go read about these guys. Some of you guys have in the faith because of that. It's stupid. Come back to Jesus, okay? What happens is, is they, as they do that, as they read about him, as they hear about him, all of them end up dying. And almost in every case, people are like, well, he ain't the Messiah. Except for Jesus. Two billion people later are going, yeah, he is who he said he was. He is the Messiah because the grave is empty. I can't go, I can't go venerate his tomb. That's what he's showing here. He's saying this is, this is rational. He, nobody believed a resurrection in the middle of history ahead of anyone was possible. This was outside even the disciples' worldview. And here he comes and he does this. And what happens too? Their lives are changed, right? We just finished studying James. Last week we ended that beautiful letter. What James, man, half-brother Jesus, thought his brother was nuts, man. Get him in a sane asylum or bring him home. He's claiming to be God. Ends up, he sees him after the resurrection and goes on, gets launched headlong off a temple mount, won't recant and disagree with his claims that Jesus is God so they bash his skull in. That is not somebody who's trying to be cute and fabricate a story. That's someone who's, Paul, man, he's the resurrected Christ. He was Saul, changed to Paul. He goes on and ends up being uh, sacrificed as well as a martyr. He goes end up telling and starting churches and planting churches and writing letters inspired by the Holy Spirit. You have Peter here, who was once totally fearful and filled with fright, now fighting with courage, giving this sermon before the religious and political system. makes no sense unless it happened. And Peter's given it. Celsus, a second-century philosopher who hated Christianity. He wrote one of the first great attacks on it, and he always talked about how Mary Magdalene, that's all he wrote about, was how Mary Magdalene was a hysterical female and how when she saw it, she freaked out and they used her as the first eyewitnesses in the accounts. He's like, why would you use Mary Magdalene, a hysterical female, as evidence? Well, He was absolutely right. Why would you? Now, in the first century, second century, that was the Achilles heel for sure but they live in a misogynistic culture. Women couldn't even speak in the court of law. You know what historians say today? That's the Achilles heel for today. Why in the world would you make up a story where females at the time who couldn't even speak in the court of law are your primary witnesses to something as great as a resurrection if it weren't true? What kind of moron are you? Here's what one writer said. If you don't believe in the resurrection you'll be forced to believe what hit the disciples was something equally amazing with equal force and electrifying intensity. And then you will have to come up with something else that is equally amazing with equal force and electrifying intensity, by, which by then you will begin to make leaps of faith greater than the resurrection itself. I can close in prayer. What he's saying is, it's rational. Yes, it's Supernatural. But God has given us reason. He's given us brains. Do we seek that out? Look at what he says in verse 36. Peter's sermon's awesome. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that this Jesus, whom he crucified. God made him Lord, one who rules over all, and God made him Christ, the one chosen to fulfill his sure plan. That sinful men and women be reconciled to God. See, he's showing that Jesus showed up and showed he was God through his miracles, but he also showed he was God through what he said. Here's why this is so important. (laughs) Yes, he healed people. Yes, he fed the poor. Yes, he befriended children. Yes, he did all those wonderful things. Do you know, but he was not put to death and crucified by lawless men because of what he did. It was because of everything he said. Because if anyone comes along saying... I'm totally without sin, and I'm God, and he's wrong about that. He's a lunatic or a liar, but man, if that's true about him, which are both things Jesus said, then it makes him absolutely faithful to the claims that he was. And that's why he went around saying, I am God, and I am sinless, and I'm going to prove it to you by being put to death and rising myself back from the grave. And he validates who he is and how did, how do the people respond verse 37 it says that when they heard this they were cut to the heart are you cut to the heart do you have humility this morning i can i can't make anybody believe this f- follow this receive this are you cut to the heart are you going man i've been wait wait a second i've been misdiagnosing the problem and the solution what you mean that the problem is sin and the solution is jesus Wait, you, you mean that, that there is a way to fullness of life? There is a way to forgiveness of sin? Wait, you, there is a way to actually have, have God? There is actually a way to enjoy my maker and my creator? Wait, you mean I've been abusing what he's made? I have been worshiping him. That's why I'm just lost and empty. I'm searching for it in my marriage, and my work, and my career, and my things, and my trinkets, and my toys, and my relationships. In my, I'm searching for all of that to somehow validate me. Man, all that will fail you because those are terrible gods. There's only one God that doesn't fail you because he's not dead. He says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I will intervene and work all of those things according to my glad counsel and will, which you can fully trust because I'm for you, not against you, because of my son. Brings you into a family, clothes you with his son's righteousness, frees you from shame. What a marvelous message. It says, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Jesus says, If you're cut to the heart this morning, and you realize. Sin is the issue and the the solution is Jesus. He doesn't want to just save you. You know he wants to save your whole family. You know he wants to work in your whole legacy. Some of you guys come from shame and brokenness. You know that God is all about, you know, his own lineage is filled with prostitutes and adulterers and people with impure hearts. And that Jesus Christ makes for himself a new humanity. You're not outside the saving grace of God or forgiveness of God. And you know that that's what the resurrection is about. It's about, man, I, I take the people on the farthest fringe and use them as some of my brightest lights. If you're here, he wants to make new not just you, but your children and your children's children. He wants to sow gospel seed and let them know this Jesus. It's not about just you. It's about humanity. It's about working this gospel out. And he tells us what to do if that's you. He says, repent. Now, repentance might sound like a, terrifying word or a gruesome word or an annoying word. Christians, we find it as a life-giving word. That, man, that, that means that we turn from all of our allegiances and our mind and our heart in our, our thoughts and our affections. We turn from those things and we turn to Jesus. Who's better? We give our hopes to Jesus, our fears to Jesus, our wants to Jesus, our worship to Jesus, our surrender to Jesus, our things to Jesus. We go, you know what to do with them. I don't know what to do with them. I'm a lawless person but you're a perfect God with a definite plan that you had in your foreknowledge from the beginning of time to fulfill, and man, I want to be a part of that plan. I want to be in that plan. I want to be involved in that plan. Would you save me? Would you have mercy on me? I see what God is doing. I see what God has done, and he says if you give all of your life to him, he'll give you his perfect, spotless, above reproach, righteous life to you. What in the world? What in the world? And repentance is not just something that you do to become a Christian. It's something you do your whole life. Some of you guys are Christians and you've stopped repenting. So maybe you're not a Christian. You're not repenting again to be saved again. Repentance is just a continual turning to Jesus. I need you. The resurrection's for me again this morning. See, it's how you grow as a Christian. The marks of a Christian are not how generous they are. How wealthy they are, how happy they are, how caring they are, how loving they are, even though those things should be true about them. A mark of a Christian is they're repentant. That they repent and turn from sin when they see it. And turn back to the God who saved them. Now this is huge, and I want to end with this. Some of us in this room, because I feel burdened by this. Some of us have never truly repented, we've just reacted. So here's the difference. When you repent, when you hear a sermon or hear a message and God grabs a hold of you, repentance is I repent and I turn to Jesus and trust him. Reaction is I hear this and I turn to myself. That's why so many people are not freed from sin. Because your whole life you keep turning to you as a functional savior. So you just manage your sin your whole life. Well, I'm going to keep repenting, keep repenting. No, repenting is getting away from managing your sin, turning and leaning headlong into Jesus and saying, he's the one I worship, he's the one I serve, he's the one I run to, and eventually the power of that breaks the stronghold of sin in your life. Instead, we got our heads in the ground going, oh, this sin, I stink, I suck, I'm terrible, and I'm just going to fix it and manage it. I'm just going to keep repenting and trusting in myself. Keep. No, turn away from sin. And turn to Jesus, he's there, he's alive, he's resurrected, he's not dead. And he's saying, I can make you alive, I can free you from sin. I am better than that, but some of us refuse to still repent, we just react. Every single time we hear a sermon, Easter Sunday, may it not be that way for you again. May this not just be a reaction. But repentance, Peter says, and then he says, and be baptized. Baptism does not save you, it demonstrates clearly, if you really repent, your first step would be obedience. I want to follow him. I want to trust him. I want to submit to him publicly. I want to announce to people that he is who he says he is, and I am in him, and he is mine, and I have allegiance to him. So I'm going to get baptized. That's why I can't wait for next Sunday. That's why we do it following Easter. Get to see the the visible reality of the internal confession of repentance. And I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to follow in my life Savior. Listen, for those of us who do not know him, the resurrected king is here. He's among us, and he says, if you call up for repentance, for the forgiveness of sin, you'll be forgiven. You'll be made new. He can adopt you into his family. By his wounds, you can be healed. Man, if you're looking to put your pain, sorrow, strife, cares, loneliness into an empty cistern, a false God that will do nothing for you, you will find yourself in the same place a year from now, back here in the seat. But if you choose to give it to a resurrected Savior, says, no, I resurrected dead people back to life because I did it myself. I can give you power over sin and Satan and death. No, I can put my spirit in you. Watch what will happen. Not because of you, but because he's awesome. And this is what he loves to do. We love to repent of sin because our God loves to forgive sin. And if you're here and you know Jesus, oh, let's enjoy our families and food today, but let's not move too far from this. Maybe some of you, God's revealing where you need to continue to repent and turn to him for life. Let's do that. May Easter mark that for you. Jesus, thank you that we get to be yours. Jesus, thank you that we get to worship you on Easter and every day. Thank you that the resurrection is true for us every day. Father, as we sing, as we shout, as we praise, as we end our service, thanking you for being who you are, alive, not dead. Might that transform us from one shade of glory to the next? Might it move us in our walk with you? God, I pray for those this morning who are stuck, spiritually stuck. God, might you give them by your own supernatural power the ability to repent of sin and turn to Jesus. Might you bring to light where there might be areas in them where the reason they're spiritually stuck is because they're not trusting you, they're trusting themselves still. God, save more. Bring more to repentance. More to salvation. And God, those of us that know you and love you, would you give us a continued heart for repentance? to every day wake up and turn to you as our good risen king that loves us and made a way for us and satisfied us with his love and his mercy Father help us this morning we thank you we praise you and as we sing hear these words in ways that honor you and worship you a God who was set forth before eternity past to bring about the eternity future that you had planned and you had scheduled thank you for not abandoning us Thank you that you're with us, and we enjoy you now in Jesus' name.